Hello. Bonjour. Hello. Welcome to Fertility Insights, the Cooper Surgical Podcast. So welcome to Fertility Insights, the Cooper Surgical Podcast. Today's episode is recorded live at ESHRA 2022. After a hiatus, we're back live and it's really great to be here in Milan. You might notice some varied audio quality as I speak to different guests around the conference centre, so I'm sorry for any background noise that you might hear. So for the first part of the ESHRA podcast, I was lucky to talk to Tony and Jack, who were part of our sponsored symposium. I'm now going to continue this conversation with two members of our professional education and clinical support team, also known as PECS. So I'm now joined by Dave Morrill and Stephen Fleming. Um, so Dave, how are you finding being at ESHRA and being back, back in person so far? Yeah, after the, the hiatus caused by the pandemic, it's, it's good to be back and actually seeing people face to face. I think the vibe is back and it's, um, yeah, it's good to have those face to face interactions that have been lacking over previous years. Definitely nothing really, really beats seeing people in real life. Um, so yeah, I'm just interested to hear about um, over the course of your career, how you've seen things really change in the, in the IVF field and the things that have perhaps been the most poignant um, moments of change, um, yeah, for you. Yeah, that's, that's a long story because <laughs> when I started, we um, timed egg collection by the woman taking three hourly urine samples oh, wow. and then testing for the endogenous LH surge. So I predate um, the easy programming of cycles. Um, we were doing egg collections by laparoscopy rather than ultrasound directed collections. Um, and of course, as well as the ultrasound directed egg collections, the, one of the massive changes that I saw quite early in, in my career was the introduction of ICSI in the early 90s, um, which revolutionized um, treatment quite quite significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to that, people had the option of risking failed fertilization or immediately converting to, to donor sperm. Um, so ICSI was a massive uh, game changer, really. And then beyond that, it's really, I think one of the things that strikes me most is the, um, the development and integration of, of genetic testing, genomics generally, into um, assisted conception and the treatments we offer. Not just in terms of PGT, but more generally, I think. Mm-hmm. And what, what things are you, are you seeing that will make a big impact in the, or thinking that will make a big impact in the next kind of few years? And is there anything that you've noticed seeing presented at ESHRA that, that you think will make a big splash? Yeah, I think we're seeing we're seeing the um, the the birth, if you like, of AI in in IVF and ART more generally becoming um, more mainstream, more um, more accepted. I think as part of the the routine provision of treatment, and I think as the the, the systems of AI become uh, more mature, more refined, we can work out which uh, are truly beneficial, uh, and they will hopefully make treatments um, more effective. We often talk about it saving time, and of course that's that's useful. But I think, from my perspective, it's the the ability to make better decisions, um, taking the subjectivity out of decision making, 
and using these big data sets to drive very well-evidenced um, clinical decisions that improve outcomes for patients because ultimately that's, that's what we should be our main target is improving patients' outcomes. So the AI is one thing, and I think linked to that will be um, some degree of automation. That, that seems to be quite, um, quite difficult at the moment, but I think that there's indications that we're moving towards more automation, particularly in the laboratory, uh, and we may even be moving towards things like robotic ICSI, but uh, that might take yeah. a little bit of time, I think. That was actually one of my questions. Do you see a future with a fully automated lab? Or? Um, probably not in my working life, <laughs> given um, where I am. But I, I think if I was a, a junior embryologist now, I would be working on the assumption that in 10, 15 years, the lab will look very different. Mm -hmm. um, it's been a promise for quite a long time, but the idea of a, a lab on a chip and automated micromanipulation techniques, I think with the, the acceleration in technologies, which we, we tend to see, um, I think that, that will come quite quickly. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's great because I think one of, the, one of the other pressing issues that keeps coming up, I think, at this meeting is that... Um, the demand for ART services is increasing mm -hmm. globally, um, and yet we appear to have issues training and recruiting embryologists. We don't seem to have enough of them. Um, we need to address that, but also the other way of solving some of that is to make the, the lab more automated, more yeah. efficient, and then the embryologists are there to drive the science, uh, make some of the... Um, patient management decisions, but rely on the technology to, to improve treatments. I guess then how would you encourage more people to look into a career of embryology or uh, what do you think, how, how could you entice someone to looking into that as a career? Well, I, you know, I can only speak from my personal experience. I, I um, started off um, doing a, a, a degree in anatomy. I, I knew I was interested in human biology rather than biology more more generally. Um, I almost fell into embryology, but it is the most fascinating field. Um, if you're a biologist, it, it's, it's exciting, it's always developing, it's, um, it's relevant, and of course it's hugely rewarding if you um, are able to make a huge such a big difference to, to couples' lives, to patients' lives, in, in helping them have a baby. The, the, you know, as with any line of work, there can be frustrations and so on, but as a, as a general rule, embryology is such a good job to have. And as I say, because there's a paucity of embryologists, you know, you, you've got a career for life. It's, it's fascinating and hugely rewarding. So I'm now lucky enough to be joined by Steve Fleming, who is our Director of Embryology and part of the PEX team. Um, thanks for agreeing to talk to me, Steve. Um, so I guess my first question is, you know, what real poignant kind of change points have you seen during your career? And um, how, do, how do you think the next few years, what, what, what changes are we going to see in the future as well for IVF? Okay, thank, thanks, Molly, um, for that question. Uh, there's been quite a few significant changes um, during my 
relatively long career in this field. And uh, initially, I would say that um, a big change, of course, was um, um, moving away from or having the confidence to move away from gamete intrafallopian transfer in the days when IVF wasn't working particularly well. And uh, the idea was that maybe things would work within the fallopian tube uh, better than in vitro. And of course, you know, once we uh, realized that we could collect our science transvaginally and, um, and we could have improved conditions for um, uh, uh, keeping the eggs in, in good condition and inseminating them, etc. Um, then that was a big move forward, I think. Uh, and, um, and of course, the other obvious one is, is the introduction of um, micro-manipulation techniques to overcome severe male uh, infertility. Um, so those, those were the two major ones early on. And, um, and then later, uh, another obvious one is when we moved from doing slow freezing, particularly of uh, embryos at the blastocyst stage, and I dare say with oocytes as well, um, that I mean, literally overnight we saw a doubling in our uh, pregnancy rates from frozen embryo transfer once we started vitrifying embryos instead of slow freezing them. So, you know, there, there are clear game-changing points that are easy to identify. And um, in future, it's always harder to um, uh, guess what's going to make the big difference. But um, uh, I, I would say that uh, as we better understand the physiology of the oocyte uh, and embryogenesis, that I, and, and as we can better identify those oocytes um, or those early embryos that um, have more of a chance of producing a pregnancy, I suspect that we, you know, unless we can really mimic in vivo, which is probably impossible, I suspect that we will eventually reach a point where we literally do an egg collection, we do an insemination, and then as soon as that egg is fertilized, or maybe even, you know, if we see extrusion of the first polar body, um, then uh, for some individuals, especially with uh, the poor prognosis patients, we may be transferring those um, very early stages back to the patient um, early on to overcome some of these problems. And, um, and then other than that, it, I think it'll come down to uh, pretty much automating everything. So taking a lot of the variability between operators out of the equation and, uh, um, and that will of course standardize all the procedures and hopefully if we develop them properly, uh, will also minimize the stress that earth sites, you know, you can imagine earth sites suffer when they're injected for ICSI and embryos suffer when they're biopsied um, for PGT. So um, if we can get to a minimal or no stress situation for these uh, earth sites and embryos, then that will have a huge um, impact, I suspect, on their viability from there on. It's um, interesting that you mentioned that kind of standardization because that's something that Jack and Dave have also kind of mentioned coming in the future. And do you, what, how important do you see the role of data and data collection for that standardization in, in the laboratory? Well, um, I've always um, heard the term data is king. And, uh, and 
uh, that's been said to me actually from an engineering field uh, from my uh, daughter's partner who is a great believer in the power of big data and um, he's even suggested that we could use uh, uh, generated data sets to fast track for example research you know uh, where you otherwise would have to wait to uh, recruit all these patients to, to go through your uh, you know to test your particular hypothesis just imagine if you could generate data sets and test the hypothesis there and then you you could see there'd be a exponential increase in um, discovery and, and uh, improvements in the whole process so um, yeah I, I truly believe data is king and uh, uh, and if we can get good quality data and analyze it in a clinically relevant manner um, that will be a huge advantage I think where the difficulty lies is in the variation between different ethnicities for example so we know that there are differences between um, Caucasians and, and, and other ethnicities and um, and also of course differences in let's say how embryos or the uterus um, uh, behaves in good good prognosis versus poor prognosis patients so I think we need to be wary of thinking that uh, analyzing one set of data is going to apply um, necessarily across the board. And um, are there any particular pieces of research that you've seen presented at ESHRA that you've kind of been really interested in or feel that's um, are going to make an impact in the industry? Yeah, that's a great question, Molly. Um, and fortunately, I did today see something that um, is an area that I've actually done research my, myself on in the past and uh, you know, in, in days gone by, we, we tried to develop in vitro models of implantation, um, uh, looking at in vitro uh, decidualization. And I used to look at these models in 3D using uh, an electron microscope. And, you know, the, so it was, it was all um, exciting and interesting. And, and we could use, uh, you know, a mixture of hormones um, to, um, in those days, I was using uh, progesterone or a uh, midroxyprogesterone acetate and uh, a relaxin to bring about in vitro decidualization of um, uh, primary cultures of endometrial stromal cells. And um, but I went to a talk this morning, which I thought was amazing, um, which um, essentially looked at uh, the use of again um, cells from um, tissue biopsies, but also looking at stem cells and um, differentiating those into uh, blastoids um, and, um, uh, and something they call assembloids, which are uh, mixtures of different cell types that, for example, make up uh, the different layers of the endometrium. And um, so uh, this is incredibly um, efficient. So they're getting 80% uh, creation of these blastoids, for example. And, um, and then you can, of course, make a pocket into your three the scaffold using matrigel of your um, reconstituted in vitro uh, lining of the uterus, if you like, and then insert this um, uh, blast blastocyst type structure into the pocket of that. And then, of course, you can then um, uh, subject uh, either those blastoids to different types of culture conditions, different um, additives, let's say, in the culture media, and and or you can um, stimulate those um, uh, uh, mixtures of cells making up the endometrium in your scaffold 
with different types of stimulation. Um, and, and then you get, again, um, straight away, you, you'll see results in terms of uh, whether the blastus is implanting into that structure. So, you know, again, phenomenal power of using uh, modern advances in um, uh, stem cell technology, for example, to, to provide very rapid answers uh, and to test the system to see whether along we're on the right track in terms of, let's say, overcoming um, uh, uh, blastocyst viability problems or endometrial receptivity problems. I think that's really cool. And like the use of stem cells across all sorts of areas of science and healthcare in the next few years is going to be really something to keep an eye on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fertility Insights. Please like, share and comment. Please note that the views expressed by our guests are their own and their appearance in the podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity that they represent.